0: Hello, welcome to Excellansis. I'm your host, Aaron Davis. You join me today for an exclusive subscriber-only episode, which is centered around music for a dictionary of obscure sorrows. The name of this podcast, and indeed the entire project of mine, actually came from a list of definitions which attempts to identify obscure emotions, which most of us have all felt or will at some point experience. Uh, From this list, I have taken a selection of such terms and tried to apply a piece of music alongside them, which attempts to get somewhere close to replicating the feeling described by each equivalent definition. Enjoy the journey! As this episode will be a speech-only episode, I'm encouraging listeners to follow the notes included within to access the selected tracks and definitions of each word as we go through. So without further ado, let's start. First word on the list is Altschmerz. That's a noun meaning weariness with the same old issues that you've always had the same boring flaws and anxieties you've been gnawing on for years, which leaves them soggy and tasteless and inert, with nothing interesting left to think about, nothing left to do but spit them out and wander off to the backyard, ready to dig up some fresher pain you might have buried long ago. An interesting definition, I'm sure you'll agree. The musical accompaniment track I've chosen for this is Tchaikovsky's Symphony No. 6 in B minor, and more specifically, the fourth movement, which can be accessed via the link in the description. Tchaikovsky's final symphony, completed shortly before the composer's mysterious death in 1893, contains a final movement which is so doleful and devoid of hope that one might physically shiver just by listening to the fragmented strings which open the movement. The definition of Altschmerz, given above, seems to fit with the mood perfectly, This music is effectively a lament for better times and, perhaps, lost hope. The search for comfort and reassurance tries to gain a footing, but self-doubt is always stronger and manages to take control every time. A calmer second theme appears, albeit no less emotional than the first, all of it carrying a certain inevitability. Fist-shaking assertiveness supported by brass and timpani crumbling away as the lachrymose first theme reappears. The tries hard once again to push away all the misery with muscular statements, but the sorrow is all-encompassing, and those wintry strings return once again to herald the inescapable descent into a fog of gloom, an irretrievable tragedy. It is now widely held that Tchaikovsky opted to drink unboiled water, leading to his death from cholera, rather than face the exposure and subsequent punishment that his homosexuality would have resulted in. For some, this final movement of the final symphony serves as a suicide note. Well, we will never know quite for sure. Moving on to the second word from our obscure dictionary, we have the word midding, a verb, which talks about feeling the tranquil pleasure of being near a gathering but not quite in it, hovering on the perimeter of a campfire, chatting outside a party while others dance inside, resting your head in the back seat of a car, listening to your friends chatting up front, feeling blissfully invisible yet still fully included, safe in the knowledge that everyone is together and everyone is okay, with all the thrill of being there without the burden of having to be. For this word, I have chosen the first movement from Robert Schumann's Piano suite Humoresque, which is titled Einfach, or Simple. The wonderfully quirky Jekyll and Hyde nature of Robert Schumann's work, particularly his piano repertoire, is represented as a perfect pastiche in this opening movement of his Humoresque. Simply titled Einfach, or Simple, the starting melody is beautifully uncomplicated. Tranquil pleasure is a fitting description for the mood here. The world is at peace, you can relax, everything is possible, you are safe. That's what this music is saying. A gentle, inoffensive musing inner section takes us on a languorous wander, but no risks are taken or need to be. And soon we find ourselves back in the soothing original key of B-flat major. At simply two minutes in duration, this is an exercise in pure repose. On to the third word of our list, which is oneism, a noun described as the frustration of being stuck in just one body that inhabits only one place at a time, which is like standing in front of the departure screen at an airport, flickering over with strange place names like other people's passwords, each representing one more thing you'll never get to see before you die, and all because, as the arrow on the map helpfully points out, you are here. I've decided to choose as an accompaniment uh, Beethoven's third movement of his Piano Sonata, number 17 in D minor, which has been titled The Tempest. This third movement of Beethoven's Tempest Piano Sonata is bursting with frustration and energy. It's argumentative and angry. That's what makes it a complementary piece to ponder the definition of oneism, which suggests the dissatisfaction of facing everyday human limitations. After all, it's a huge world out there, and there is so much to see and explore. Rachmaninoff captured it best, perhaps, when he said, music is enough for a lifetime, but a lifetime is not enough for music. Mm -hmm. Next up, we have the word cubico. A noun which is described as a state of exhaustion inspired by acts of senseless violence, which force you to revise your image of what can happen in this world. Mending the fences of your expectations, weeding out all unwelcome and invasive truths, cultivating the perennial good that's buried under the surface, and propping yourself up like an old scarecrow who's bursting at the seams, but powerless to do anything but stand there and watch. What better choice to accompany this strange word, cubico, than Edward Elgar's cello concerto in E minor, in particular the first movement. Edward Elgar's utter dismay at the senseless savagery and waste of life witnessed by a whole new kind of warfare is well documented. His much-loved cello concerto, which was completed in 1919, offers sober and sombre reflections on the remains of a world changed forever. There is no shortage of words to describe the various emotions and states of mind that he conjures up just through this initial movement, let alone the entire concerto. Wistful, rueful, nostalgic, ultimately the music fits that particular state of exhaustion aptly. On to word number five, Avenoir, the desire that memory could flow backward. We take it for granted that life moves forward, but you move as a rower moves, facing backwards. You can see where you've been, but not where you're going, and your boat is steered by a younger version of you. It's hard not to wonder what life would be like facing the other way. For this track selection, I have chosen Sergei Rachmaninoff's uh, Opus 33 Etude Tableau, Number two in C major. Comprised within a set of spectacularly difficult to play virtuosic pieces by Rachmaninoff, composed in 1911, this second etude in C major evokes flowing water and dreamy landscapes. There is a tinge of regret and what might have been within the flowing arpeggios. This piece could conceivably serve as the mute music for the ponderance of. If life could flow in the other direction, then what? It's supremely polished and technically brilliant, with a real meditative message contained within. Word number six is ambido, a kind of melancholic trance in which you become completely absorbed in vivid sensory details Raindrops skittering down a window, tall trees leaning in the wind, clouds of cream swirling in your coffee, all of which leads to a dawning awareness of the haunting fragility of life. Very poetic indeed, and who better to reflect that poetic description than Frederick Chopin, his Etudes, Opus 25, Number 12, in C minor. Occasionally given the programmatic title Ocean. Chopin's final etude in C minor easily conjures up wild images of tempestuous, stormy waters. Speaking of vivid sensory details, this majestic study of just over two minutes glitters with such dramatic imagery that it is hard to believe that their composer originally intended them as purely functional academic works designed for aspiring concert pianists to polish and hone their dexterity. This etude fits well to the description given above and takes the listener on an impassioned journey through the fragility of life itself. The expedition, with its despairing C minor opening, takes the listener through a kaleidoscope of emotions before arriving at a forceful and definitive conclusion in C major. You might say triumph over adversity. Our next entry in the dictionary is Nodus Tollens, the realisation that the plot of your life doesn't make sense to you anymore, that although you thought you were following the arc of the story, you keep finding yourself immersed in passages you don't understand, that don't even seem to belong in the same genre, which requires you to go back and reread the chapters you had originally skimmed to get to the good parts, only to learn that all along you were supposed to choose your own adventure. I've decided again to choose Rachmaninoff and one of his preludes in the Opus 23 set, this one being number 5 in G minor. This ever-popular prelude sets out its stall with a somewhat rigid and inflexible march-like theme in G minor, representing the steady daily plot of life, perhaps, before developing the central theme, before a rather languorous and sultry second theme. This contemplative middle section might provide a perfect synergy to the definition given, where the protagonist is starting to realise that something clearly doesn't fit, and asks himself whether the time has come to shed his skin, perhaps. Ever-growing curiosity and an accelerating pushing of the envelope illuminates the path back toward the original theme, and a neat little coda wraps up the adventure. The protagonist, having exercised their wish to muse and ponder, simply goes back to normal everyday life. Well, dear listener, if, like myself, you love books, the next word and its definition may make some sense to you. The next word is velicor the strange wistfulness of used bookstores which are somehow infused with the passage of time, filled with thousands of old books you'll never have time to read, each of which is itself locked in its own era, bound and dated and papered over like an old room the author abandoned years ago, a hidden annex littered with thoughts left just as they were on the day they were captured. For something along these lines, I have referred back to the genius of Robert Schumann, and a selection from his Faschingschwank aus Wien, the carnival scenes from Vienna. The second piece in that set is the Romance. This pleasing sounding word and its definition required a pretty specific piece of music to try and match the intended emotion. Therefore, I have chosen another Robert Schumann miniature, his Romance from the 1839 work Faschingschwank aus Wien. Taking up just one sheet of music and although relatively simple to play, there is a whole world of regret tinged with sadness contained within. You can almost picture the dusty old bookshelves and reflect wistfully on the passage of time easily with this piece as your guide. Our next word is anecdosh, a conversation in which everyone is talking but nobody is listening simply overlaying disconnected words, like a game of Scrabble, with each player borrowing bits of other anecdotes as a way to increase their own score until we all run out of things to say. Sounds familiar, perhaps? For this selection, I have chosen the Rondo, which is the third movement of Elgar's Symphony No. 2, Op. 63, a slightly lesser-known work, Um, along the mainstream. Uh, Sitting as the penultimate movement of Elgar's enigmatic and less familiar Second Symphony is this rondo. The music is appropriately busy, packed with scampering passages distributed across all sections of the orchestra. Indeed, it sometimes seems like a patchwork of different ideas and perhaps somewhat disconnected at times, making it a good oral representation of this word. A final scuttling race towards the conclusion of this particular conversation is staged before everyone ultimately runs out of things to say. Time for another fantastic word, which in this case is anamoya, nostalgia for a time you've never known. This is something that maybe our classical music friends uh, are experiencing quite frequently, listening to these wonderful tracks. Imagine stepping through the time frame into a sepia-tinted haze where you could sit on the side of the road and watch the locals passing by who lived and died before any of us arrived here, who sleep in some of the same houses we do, who look up at the same moon, who breathe the same air, feel the same blood in their veins, and yet live in a completely different world. I've decided to lean on our friend Frederick Chopin and his early nocturne number one in B flat minor from Opus 9. Chopin's very first nocturne announced his truly unique poetic style to the world in a work which employs the left hand arpeggios and rhythmical freedoms in the right hand, which ultimately came to characterize his particular style. The range of tonal colours and depth of feeling which this first nocturne evoke is remarkable given the tender young age of Chopin when he composed it, around 1830. It's a true dreamscape and a wonderful composition with which to consider the definition above. Still with us? Just about? Excellent. The next word is monocopsis, the subtle but persistent feeling of being out of place, as maladapted to your surroundings as a seal on the beach, lumbering, clumsy, easily distracted, huddled in the company of other misfits, unable to recognise the ambient roar of your intended habitat in which you'd be fluidly, brilliantly, effortlessly at home. Let's look at the example of Ludwig van Beethoven and his third piano concerto in C minor, the final movement being Rondo. Possibly the most popular of all Beethoven's piano concerti, a slightly agitated theme opens the movement, passing between the piano and the orchestra in some neat interplay. Deft passage work from the soloist reinforces that sense of being out of place. A calmer second theme offers a new perspective. Perhaps a picture of the intended habitat, where our pondering protagonist would be fully at ease. The music grows restless once again, and through some extraordinary connecting framework, Beethoven takes us back to that initial feeling of agitation and rootlessness. Happily, we will not remain stuck in this frame of mind, Instead, we are transported with a bang into the relative major, which is C major, for a brief but joyful interlude which affirms our arrival at the place we're meant to be. Up next, the word enumal, the bitter sweetness of having arrived here in the future where you can finally get the answers to how things turn out in the real world, who your baby sister would become, what your friends would end up doing, where your choices would lead you, exactly when you'd lose the people you took for granted, which is priceless intel that you instinctively want to share with anybody who hadn't already made the journey, as if there was some part of you who had volunteered to stay behind, who was still stationed at a forgotten outpost somewhere in the past, still eagerly awaiting news from the front. For this selection, I have gone all the way back to the time of George Frederick Handel, and his fantastic water music suite number 1 in F major. I've chosen the fifth track, Air. Premiered in 1717 for King George I to great acclaim, Handel's remarkable water music speaks through the centuries with a great clarity of the full range of human emotions, which, despite changing fashions, tastes and attitudes, remains fundamentally unchanged. Taken from the suite in F major, this fifth movement is an air which is undoubtedly bittersweet and tinged with the sense of unanswered questions and what might have been. Overall, it's gentle music, heartfelt and filled with a sense of longing. Thank you for bearing with me, dear listener. We are approaching the final two words now. So if you've made it this far, give yourself a pat on the back. Our next word is sonder, which is the realization that each random passerby is living a life as vivid and complex as your own populated with their own ambitions, friends, routines, worries, and inherited craziness, an epic story that continues invisibly around you like an anthill sprawling deep underground, with elaborate passageways to thousands of other lives that you'll never know existed, in which you might appear only once, as an extra sipping coffee in the background, as a blur of traffic passing on the highway, as a lighted window at dusk, for something so deep and meaningful, I've referred to Modest Mussorgsky's Pictures at an Exhibition and the fourth track, Budlo, and I'm not entirely sure I pronounced that correctly, uh, originally composed for solo piano. This fourth picture is taken from Ravel's famous orchestration of this majestic work. Budlo, meaning cattle in Polish, sorry for any Poles listening, is a musical contemplation of a Polish cart on enormous wheels drawn by oxen. Written in the extremely unusual key of G-sharp minor, the music begins with a trudging quality, perfectly capturing the great lumbering creature moving toward the viewer, becoming louder and gradually receding into the distance, the sound gradually dying away into nothing. This is a deeply thoughtful sketch and affords the listener space for great contemplation as I'm sure Mussorgsky had in the gallery himself. We will finish this episode, dear listener, with one of my very favorite tracks of music. Um, the word for this being Mauerbauer Traurigkeit, a German word meaning the inex- inexplicable urge to push people away, even close friends who you really like, as if all your social taste buds suddenly went numb, leaving you unable to distinguish cheap politeness from the taste of genuine affection, unable to recognize its rich and ambiguous flavors, its long and delicate maturation, or the simple fact that each tasting is double-blind. The track in question is Edvard Grieg's Death of Arze, which is taken from his Peer Gint Suite Number 1, Opus 46. This is a truly tragic piece of music written by Norway's most famous musical son, Edvard Grieg. Arze's Dod, in Norwegian, Arze's death, is a deeply sorrowful reflection on the death of a character within Henrik Ibsen's play Pier Gint. It has the composer's unique musical style all over it, a mystical Scandinavian flavour, lush strings and rich harmonies. I chose this musical representation of the word Mauerbauer Traurigkeit because it seems to fit the description of a sudden loss of hope a desire to push even close friends away, and a struggle to arrest the lethargy. And there you have it, dear subscriber. Thank you so much for your time and your attention today in this exclusive subscriber-only episode. Please feel free to make any further requests for personalised content as you see fit. I'm happy to oblige where feasible. Uh, Until next time, I wish you a very pleasant, safe week ahead. Take care and until next time, all the best.